So is Sophia Kennan my dreams come true girl? I dreamed that she would be in the US Open final, but maybe I just missed the trailing A. She was there alongside Serena Williams, Juan Martin Del Pocho and Andre Rublev were in the other final. I haven't yet put money on this, but I suspect that Kennan's odds are definitely get less favorable for the US Open. Should I trust my dreams now? Does this represent an accurate foretelling of the future that came out of my head? My subconscious? Somehow I knew? Something spoke to me? Told me in the dark what would come? I mean, Ken was a good player. She had some really good results last year, just outside the top 10. A little bit of a stretch to think she'd be in a slam final, and this is, this is the very next slam final after my dream. I wonder if I can recreate the conditions under which I had that original dream. But I don't think I was paying enough attention. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. That's all I'm going to get, as far as telling the future goes. Have you had any dreams lately, Matt? Dear David, no, I can't remember any dreams of late. When I dream about tennis, I usually dream about playing tennis, and in those dreams, I'm very frustrated because I can't move my body the way I want to. I, I seem to slide all over the dream and I can't move my body properly. And Anyway, it's kind of a bit like the game I played against Alex um, just two days ago. He beat me 6-1, 6-1. So he's the um, Tennis Tragic Australian Open champion. And yeah, he. I, I played. A, I played, not the best, but he had played really well. He's really getting getting a lot better. Um. So yeah, I applaud you for dreaming about Sophia Cannon. I think your subconscious is great, and you should just not try and control it, and not try and recreate any conditions, but just let things flow. See you soon. Hey Matt, so today I had a yoga class and at the end of the class we did Shavasana, um, you know, so I'm lying down on the floor and I was reminded suddenly of a dream that I had just last night where Roger Federer was retiring from a match. This is kind of relevant in light of what happened with him at this year's Australian Open because he was clearly playing injured and in his semi-final against Novak Djokovic he was looking so 
out of sorts that after the match he said that perhaps um, if he had had to go any longer he would have retired from the match. Quite unusually, Roger has never retired from a match over the course of his entire career. Um, I think it's sort of a point of pride with him. And I wonder if this dream, for me, was really um, this sense of an ending, you know, this, um, this awareness that my time here in Australia is coming to an end, uh, much like how Roger Federer's career is pretty close to the end as well. So as I was lying there on the floor, I became deeply sad thinking about the end for Roger and also the end for me. Talk soon. Bye. Dear David, your dream will come true one way or the other because Federer is going to retire um, either during a match or at the end of one of his matches soon. I hope it doesn't happen for a while though because I'm really enjoying this period of Federer where he's at the end but he's still competing and still getting to the final, the finals of slams and winning tournaments. Um, it just makes me think of life and death and the romance um, of the struggle between life and death. Like, the thing I like to do is to watch YouTube videos of simulations of plane crashes that have actually happened. There's this guy, Mauricio PC, who um, who makes videos using uh, um, flight simulators to show how it happened that a plane came to be in this situation where it was going to crash or something was going to go wrong. And this one I'm watching now is Alaska Airlines Flight 261, where the company um, lengthened the interim between its maintenance of the aircraft, and that meant that this one part didn't get lubricated the way it was supposed to and that led to a failure in flight where the pilots were crashing but they didn't give up and they tried to fly the plane upside down they did everything they possibly could and it wasn't their fault but the plane ended up crashing into the bay near Los Angeles just as they were trying to land and then at the end of these videos of Mauricio PC he puts this uplifting music that you can hear now it's like uplifting but it's a bit sad as well and then he um, simulates the plane flying once again as if in heaven so now I'm looking at the MD-83 which is flying in the sky as if it's reborn I'll see you I'll hear from you soon bye Hey Matt, I got your message. So I'm home alone here on a Saturday night and uh, I turn on the television and uh, the YouTube recommendation engine suggests that I watch highlights from Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal's exhibition match in South Africa that they played earlier this week. 
and watching it, there was something about the video that evoked this strangely similar feeling to what you were just describing. It felt almost like a reimagination of history that recasts this intensely charged rivalry as an easy and delightful hit at the park. I was really taken by how the two of them were playing with such freedom and joy and a, and a kind of grace. They were really taking pleasure in one another's company, taking in the surroundings, constantly smiling from ear to ear. They seemed so grateful for the experience, so genuinely happy to be there. And the two of them were playing in an arena with over 50,000 people in it, apparently setting the world record for the most people ever to see a tennis match live. The match highlights were just loaded with these absurd rallies that seemed to defy the laws of physics. There was this one shot where Rafa was at the net and he did something that I can only describe as a 360 reverse overhead backhand smash volley. It was kind of like a pirouette or a dance move. It seems like something you would have to rehearse, but it was all just instinctual, and I wonder how those kinds of instincts could ever be developed. The whole thing was just really pleasant to watch. There were no stakes, nothing was on the line. Federer won the match, but I sort of think that that might have been preordained. That uh, Rafa Nadal is okay playing second fiddle to, to Roger, even though he's beaten him more often than not. I think that the history books have been written already, and we all know that Roger is the greatest and always will be, even if Rafa and Novak take all of the records. Roger will always be the greatest. At the end of the video, there were these highlights from a dance party that they had on the court. Roger and Rafa and Trevor Noah and Bill Gates, a few dozen select South Africans, just jumping up and down, arms in the air, smiling wide, carefree. I suppose that if there is a heaven, Roger and Rafa will be playing matches there for all of eternity. Talk soon. Margaret Court was recognized for her grand the anniversary of her Grand Slam achievements. Um, and John McEnroe and Martina Navratilova did a protest um, where they walked across Rod Laver with a banner that said Yvonne Goolagong Arena, um, obviously in reference to um, a player that they think would better um, encapsulate um, a hero, an icon, someone worth worthy of naming a big tennis stadium after. Um, they were admonished by Tennis Australia for that, but I think many of us, the sports, who are sports fans and um, interested in the politics of it, and who aren't, who are not homophobes like Margaret Court is, um, really applaud that move. You know, they they spoke up about. Um, I, I was personally very happy with what they did. Yeah, I liked it. I liked McEnroe also stepping into the, the fray there and showing support. And um, 
because uh, I feel like um, uh, Martina Navratilova has been pretty outspoken about it over time. And I'm not sure that John McEnroe had really come out against the name of the arena being being one that honors Margaret Court. I wonder how Yvonne Gulagong thinks about all of this. You know, has, has she made any statements on it, Matt? Do you know anything about No. Uh... why? I haven't seen, I think my impression is that she's a pretty hum, humble woman and like there's no way she's going to be saying, yes, you should name the arena after me. Um, but I haven't even heard any criticism from her about Margaret Court. She was there watching one of Ash Barty's matches. So she's, she's around. She's, I'm sure she's aware of the controversy. I guess it's when you step into the public sphere with with ideas that other people find to be hateful, then, uh, you know, you're asking for trouble. You know, I don't know a lot about either Margaret Court or Yvonne Gulagong. A lot of this has just been kind of legislated, um, not legislated, litigated through the, through the controversy. Uh, for me, you know, as, as somebody who's not an Australian, you know, I probably hear more about Margaret Court because of the fact that an arena is named after her. I hear about her because Serena Williams is trying to chase down the record that she holds, which is a little bit of a dubious record anyway, because a lot of the slams that she won were from an era where not all the great players necessarily went to Australia to play the AO. Like the name that you put on a thing is important. Uh, choosing to honor somebody by naming a building or an, a sporting arena or a park or putting up a statue to, you know, that's an, that's an honor. Um, and it, you know, it elevates the status of the person. And I think Martina said it best in her statement, I'm paraphrasing, we need to consider the entire person that we're naming the sports arena after. Like, obviously her tennis achievements were great. Right, Every, everyone... The only thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, everyone is saying, yeah, she's a great player, but if you want to sell... You, you know what? You can't just celebrate a person for their tennis achievements. I mean, to go to go to the extreme, uh, to an extreme. If if Hitler was a really great tennis player, would we? And he'd won a lot of Grand Slams and and also become a genocidal dictator. Um, would we separate the genocide from the the tennis and still name you know um, Adolf Hitler Arena after him? Uh, I think not. Now, obviously. Um, yeah, uh, homophobia, uh, casual homophobia might, might not be as bad as genocide, but it's um, it's not something we tolerate, and it's hateful, and um, it divides us, and it doesn't, it's not conducive to um, to good human relations and to getting along with each other. I think it's totally right to do that to um, to separate to not separate the person from the player. Like, I think Martina Navratilova is talking about uh, like Arthur Ashe an icon for black America, Rosa Parks. There must be a lot of stuff in America named after Rosa Parks as well. Yeah, but this is this has been a political issue in recent years where, you know, you, um, you have uh, cities in the South that have monuments to Confederate heroes. So uh, the, Confederate, the Confederate States of America was the, you know, the part of America that seceded from the Union in order to protect their... Uh, what they saw as their right to keep slaves. You know, I think a lot of people in the South, they have ancestry connected to the Confederate Army. And so throughout the, what is it, 150 years since the Civil War, um, 
you know, monuments were erected throughout the South to a lot of the Confederate war heroes. And so only now you, people are starting to ask themselves, why, like, how is this acceptable? You know, like, it, can you imagine what it's like for, you know, a young Black person to grow up around the corner from a monument to a person who actively fought to enslave their ancestors? Yeah, you know? yeah, it's not on. And a similar thing in Australia, like we've got heaps of Captain Cook monuments, but you know, recently there's been the change the date movement for changing changing Australia Day, which is the day the British colonists arrived to to um, take over. And Captain Cook monuments in Hyde Park here in Sydney, they've been graffitied over, um, saying change the date and that you know Australia Day is Invasion Day. Um, so I mean, yeah, like there's these historical monuments that we can see now. There's a growing tide to get rid of them or to replace them. And Margaret Court Arena is a recently named arena. So, you know, it's like, it's not a historic thing. We can, you know, very clearly see that homophobia is wrong and therefore shouldn't be really naming um, a stadium after Margaret Court. You know, you were invoking Hitler before as sort of an extreme example. And I was, I was thinking of Godwin's Law. You know, do you know Godwin's Law, Matt? No. It's um, uh, it's an internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. <laughs> so, guilty, I'm guilty. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think like you know you have to be careful when arguing from extremes. You know, I'd like I've heard. I mean, I don't get the impression that Margaret Court is a terrible person in all ways in her life. I don't think it's okay that we honor somebody who has such vehemently publicly anti-gay opinions. And I would prefer that we name it after somebody else. Yeah, I hesitate to call her a monster. I hesitate to dehumanize somebody in that way. I think I mean, we just do better, you know? I think that sure. it's just, it's a choice that we make. Like it is a political choice that, you know, Tennis Australia or whoever the powers that be that make that decision are, you know, that they're, they're coming to yeah um I, I agree like let's not make it personal i'm sure margaret court with her family and friends is is nice and stuff but this is a public uh a stadium that it's a message to everybody that saying that homophobia is okay um if we name it after margaret court so you just gotta you just gotta think um a bit more widely yeah we don't have to say that she's a terrible person but there's there's bigger issues at stake, like you know the suicide rate for young gay people and trans people is much higher than the rest of the population, and saying, mm. um, you know, and there's been such a history of violence and oppression and bad laws criminalizing um, gay activity and stuff. It's just uh, there's so much work that still needs to be done for healing, and this is just the kind of thing that sets it sets it back that's why McEnroe and Navratilova's voices are so important right because it, it gives the other side tennis australia i think are really they've, they've tried to downplay the margaret court stuff because they know it's not popular and they know they're going to lose right. they're going to lose fans and get bad publicity if they elevate margaret court too much so they've tried to dampen the celebrations but what they really yeah. need to do is just once and for all say look we made a mistake Margaret Court, you're a great tennis player, but we don't want to name the stadium after you anymore. And then, like, open it up to uh, a process. And Yvonne Gulligan would be great because she's um, such an icon for Aboriginal Australia. No one says anything right. bad about her. She, like, 
she coaches, I think she coaches um, disadvantaged communities and stuff. So it's like, yeah, she sounds like a stand-up person. From the beginning of this tournament, the, this discussion has been on my mind. And I think it was probably brought up again because Tennis Australia did choose to honor Margaret Court in a ceremony uh, at the Australian Open. But they, you know, it's like they're trying to have it both ways. You know, they, they want to minimize how they kind of, you know, treat her, or how much noise they make about her. But um, they're not going to be really that strict about the protests. I mean, you know, they... I don't think there was video on Margaret Court Arena when McEnroe and Nevertilova went out there and protested. There's only like these, you know, these sketchy photographs. You know, they cut the mic on them. And there, you know, it's apparently a whole dramatic scene about it. But the, the response afterwards was so wishy-washy. You know, they like gently chastised the two of them for breaking the rules. But of course, McEnroe and Nevertilova aren't going to lose their credentials over this because that would just inflame the whole situation. You know, so and then McEnroe and Navratilova wrote these like, you know, these fake apologies. They apologized for not being aware of the rules that they were breaking of the of the <laughs> protocol. I think they, they yes, yeah, but um, they yeah, obviously they, they don't care. You know, which I I guess was yeah, it was just a way for them to kind of like for all sides to be like, all right, well, they had their say. They they had the protest. It's out there. Um, we're not going to ban them over something like this. But you know, if it was if it was you and I, if we had managed to somehow secure uh, tennis tragic press accreditation, and then like ran onto Margaret Court uh, with a sign that said Yvonne Gulagong Arena, we'd probably be in jail, <laughs> you know, like, and we would never be let in again. So it's good that people that these people who are powerful within this world were using their platform to make the statement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was reading uh, I was reading old tweets today, which is you know like. Uh, terrible idea. It's bad for your health. Um, but I was, <laughs> the reason I was doing that is that I was exploring a little bit of the history of Tennis Sandgren because Tennis Sandgren had this really interesting run at the Australian Open, once again making the quarterfinals. And in the quarterfinals, he managed to blow seven match points against Roger Federer, like a clearly ailing you know, nowhere near 100% Roger Federer. Oh, he had a golden opportunity to, to beat Federer. Federer was down and out. I cannot believe that Tennis Sandgren lost that match. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really, you know, it was tragic in in many ways. I mean, it's just like, you know, and so Tennis Sandgren had this public past that is a little bit, well, I guess I, I don't know, colorful maybe is a way to put it. Tennis Sandgren made the quarterfinals here Three years ago and um during that run people started looking at his tweets and realizing like oh he kind of follows like the who's who of american like alt-right people and you know fox news and and you know and he had a, like a particularly stupid tweet where he um seemed to be kind of endorsing the, the pizzagate conspiracy theory which is you know the one where hillary clinton was running like a sex trafficking ring in the basement of a pizzeria in washington dc the total it's beyond nonsense right and you know i kind of went back in looking at this because i found tennis sandgren to be a really compelling character during this run and you know i got to watch him live up close and kind of get a feeling for his personality and i liked like his outfit and you know just kind of and i got this impression that he was kind of thin-skinned and then to blow seven match points against roger federer and it was all he blew it you know it wasn't like Federer came up with unbelievable play at, 
on match point, sort of like Sophia Kennan did, um, you know, with on break point last night in the third set. Um, it wasn't unbelievable. No, he was just, Federer was just hanging in there. It was like, oh, just, just exactly. play another shot. Maybe a miracle will happen. Right. And all Tennis Sandgren could do is like hit the ball into the net <laughs> with the match on his racket. So, um, you know, afterwards he, he said something like, yeah, I'm going to need a, Gonna need some stiff drinks for this one. Maybe you know a double shot for for every match point blown. Which was and, seven, um, wasn't it? Seven match points he had. Seven match points. So you know, fourteen shots of liquor. I mean, you know, he's a big guy. He could probably handle his booze. I so going back through his Twitter history, which is all post uh, the PizzaGate incident. You know, I realized like, yeah, he seems like an American conservative. He's also super sarcastic. He's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like when we saw like, him on court, he, he he kind of got me. You know, like he seems a bit he seems a bit intelligent, actually. I have to say. Yeah, yeah. When you hear him speak, you realize he is not a dummy, and um, but that's the thing. All we really knew about him was the press telling us he liked the Pizza Gate tweet, or like you know he said something about it, and <laughs> you know, and like looking back, you can't even find the tweet. Um, I, I wasn't able to find, uh, I was able to find like a screenshot of it, but it wasn't in context. It was in response to something else, but I didn't have the context. And, and after kind of reading his history and being like, he's kind of a sarcastic guy and he's a little bit cynical. I was like, I don't even, maybe he was saying that completely in jest. Um, you know, his response to the whole thing was to delete all his Twitter history and be like, Hey, I just, I don't, doesn't define who I am. And I think that it's fair to give him the benefit of the doubt in a way and think like, hey, you know, um, maybe he has beliefs that I really disagree with. Maybe he has beliefs that I would even find kind of hateful or, you know, or like really distasteful. But do I really know him? What do I know about Tennis Sandgren? He's a guy I watched play tennis. He's got a personality. I don't really know him or what he believes. And there's this thing that happens with the internet where we just think like, oh, well, you like this person's tweets and so therefore you are a monster and that kind of logical leap i think is really important to to avoid yeah yeah um he's, he's a funny guy i mean it's a, it's a shame about the right wing stuff um but yeah um yeah i, I, I no I, longer feel like i can't root for him because he might be a right winger you know that's not that's not how i feel about him yeah well <laughs> it's funny because there's not when they're playing tennis. Um, their political views aren't really on show, and but their personality is, and so maybe that's like maybe you can forgive if someone is has a nice personality, like I think tennis Sangren might have, um, but they have some questionable political views. Maybe you can still be friends with them. I mean, I would if I was friends with tennis Sangren, I'm. I would try and convince him that his views are uh, are hateful. Uh, well, they they are, they can cause hate, and um, you know, and that he should abandon them. But right, but I still watching him play tennis, and you know, he's like chatting to the crowd. And he's 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 telling people off because they're making stupid jokes, and he's like, "Oh, what a dumb joke! You're calling me tennis." <laughs> Like, because someone said when we were watching him on court too, um, just play tennis, tennis. 
And he was like, oh, you're really funny. I never heard that joke before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know, it sounds, it sounds all right. I mean, that's the thing. You, I'm more willing to believe that somebody is just ignorant or that they, you know, they happen to be surrounded by people who have given them a different impression of the world. And I can't assume that they're, you know, that they're necessarily hateful. You know, like I was looking, looking through Tennis Sandgren's tweets. I found this one. I mean, you know, again, I don't want to jump to conclusions about tweets, but I found one where he retweeted a news article about how this, like, you know, this uh, Muslim, this mosque had made a big donation to support, like, the survivors of a shooting at a synagogue. And I was like, oh, you like, he's just, you know, whatever. Maybe he's, you know, he's virtue signaling in some way or whatever. But no, if I just take it at face value, like, he was expressing like some positivity about different religious groups, be, you know, supporting one another, which is a kind of, you know, which is an open-minded way of looking at the world. Um, anyway, he's not my friend. He could be a dick, um, but I don't know that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ultimately just going to make decisions based on what I see on the court because my perspective on the players is that they're, they're entertainment. You know, I mean, they're, they're human beings and I'm fascinated by human beings, um, but I don't have a real relationship with them. And, uh, you know, I, I almost wish that I had people in my life who had different views, who I could communicate with and like learn about their perspective, but also try to influence them positively. And I don't tend to have that because I think we tend to live in bubbles these days. Mm. He's certainly one of the more, he certainly has more personality than a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I'll find other right wingers to hate. I mean, you know, John Isner, I used to really enjoy watching John Isner. And for some reason he became like a giant, like Trump fan. And, you know, he's like, he's kind of dickish about it. You know, he's kind of unabashedly pro-Trump in a way that I just find really distasteful. And so I've just decided I don't like him anymore. And his game style is boring. He's a surfbot. On the other side of things, um, you know, uh, well, maybe segueing anyway to Ash Barty who um, is not a right-winger as far as I know. Um, she's an Aboriginal woman, and she was asked by um, Jim Courier. Oh, she was, she was uh, Jim Courier said to her, Happy Australia Day, because she played on the, 20, mm. the 26th of January. Right. And, and she, she took that. Obviously, down the road um, in, Melbourne, in the centre of Melbourne, there were Invasion Day protests led by Aboriginal people. Um, yeah. for the injustice of colonization um, and everything that Aboriginal people have had to um, endure, genocide, the stolen generation, um, being second-class citizens in, on their own country. Um, and, um, she, you know, she took, she, she, you know, took that with good grace. And, but then in the press conference was asked about... Um, asked about Australia Day as an Aboriginal woman how does she does she think that the date should be changed because there's a big movement around that and she kind of said look I'm a proud Aboriginal woman whatever the date is I'm going to be proud about it and it's not for me to say um and obviously there must be incredible pressure from you know if you're a top athlete like her to not get into the controversy of taking a political position. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah, so she kind of played it neutral. And um, 
Were you disappointed by that? Well, I can't be disappointed with Ash because I'm not Aboriginal and I don't know what it's like to have that kind of pressure um, that she has because if she did come out and say yesterday should be changed and like flew the Aboriginal flag on court and said um, that she doesn't agree with the whole basis of of the Australian state, then um, it would just, you know, at the same time she's trying to do the most important thing in her life, like win another Grand Slam, she would have... She would be drawing all this attention and it would create this media firestorm and, you know, some people would love her more and some people would hate her more and it just, you know, like, does that, is that something she wants to be the focus of her life? She seems like a person who's really down to earth in kind of in almost an extreme way, you know, like she just seems to want to do her job and be with her people and it's not that complicated. Right. Yeah. And she's, she's pretty young as well. But unfortunately, when you read the media coverage on Ash Barty saying that she's a proud Australian woman and a proud Aboriginal woman and someone who doesn't want to get drawn into the debate on whether or not we change um, the date of Australia Day, it really plays into the hands of the Australian state and the government um, just going on um, like nothing's happened, like there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the foundation of this country and that we don't need to address the question of Aboriginal justice and land rights and all the rest because look, here is a happy um, a success story for Aboriginal Australia, someone who's... Um, not speaking out politically and I think yeah like the Australian media is always going to going to use this kind of story for their own purposes um not to say that Ash um it's Ash's responsibility but it is definitely our responsibility to to look at stuff like this and interrogate it and and um get below the surface yeah I this is a very familiar um type of thing from American sports as well where there is a sector of the population that doesn't that you know they get upset anytime uh like an athlete or sports in general suddenly seem to be taken over by a political perspective that is different from their own i mean that's the thing they'll they'll say like we just don't want politics in our entertainment right like we just can we just could we just focus on the tennis you know like yeah ash barty she's she's just australian we're all behind her what why do we have to make this a thing where there are sides or perspectives or like I have to, I have to think about issues that are bigger than, you know, uh, how well my favorite player just performed, you know, it's um, and it's disappointing in a way because I just think like sports can be this incredible lens for looking at society and culture and values and, you know, I think most people just, I, I get, I get the impulse to just shut it off sometimes, you know? Yeah, me too. Like you want, you know, you want, you, if you really want to engage with that, that type of discussion, there are other places to go find it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I also think in, in America, a lot of the time, you know, when celebrities, you know, speak up about political issues, you know, um, yeah, I feel like it contributes to this. Uh, you know, the kind of the polarization uh, of politics right now, you know, everything must be for or against. Mm. You know, there, there isn't a lot of room for, for in between, for ongoing discussion, for honest debate. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. I think, but um, you know, when, when Adam Goods is an Australian AFL football player, 
I mm. spoke out about racism. He out, he got hounded by the Australian media, and every ground, and he also public, like every um, away game that he played, he would be booed by the crowd um, because he dared to speak up as an Aboriginal as an Aboriginal man against the racism that he was experiencing. It's so interesting. Do you, do you know about Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, he took a knee, didn't he? Um, yeah, and then he basically was blacklisted by the NFL and never played again. And, and it's interesting that we're talking about this now because the Super Bowl is going to happen in some number of hours in the U.S. And the San Francisco 49ers, his old team, is in the Super Bowl. So it's kind of like bubbled up again, you know, like, well, what happened to Kaepernick? Why didn't he ever play again? Like, you know, it seems like he was still healthy enough and good enough. And, um, but, you know, the NFL's audience is general. I mean, it's a little bit of everybody. I mean, it's, it's a major deal in the U.S. But, you know, there's a big conservative element in there. And people were just made, they were just uncomfortable by the whole notion of protest. And, you know, they, they come up with this argument that I really don't think is very genuine about how like you know he's disrespecting the flag or somehow you know uh, disrespecting veterans because he's taking a knee during the national anthem it's like well he got your attention maybe the next step is to listen to what he's saying yeah <laughs> you know and um there's also uh, you know colin kaepernick is also connecting with like a huge movement like the black lives matter movement yes that's got hundreds of thousands of people out there protesting so it's not like he's alone. It's not like he's talking out of turn. He's just saying, you know, he's uh, what a lot of people are saying. And there's a growing movement around that. And, you know, that's to, that's to be applauded. Yeah, I agree. But it's also because I tend to share his political perspective. I don't know. Maybe it, it is more complicated than that. I do think, I think that, you know, pro athletes, Hollywood celebrities, like I, I generally think, it's a good thing when they speak out because they do, they get people out of that comfort zone. You know, it's so we are, we can overwhelm ourselves with entertainment. We don't really have to pay attention to anything going outside, going on outside our window of, if we so choose, you know, like how the three of us last week decided to only focus on tennis and basically nothing but tennis for seven whole days, which is just an incredible modern luxury. And even in that, I'm, I'm bicycling to the, tennis today oh there's a protest here like i have to exit that that you know that place of escape and engage with this just for a minute and i didn't really feel like it was that big of an ask to to think about that for a minute you know to contemplate what this is all about what it means to to various people yeah and i, and I don't think you can ever fully you can, you can take a holiday and watch tennis for seven days straight but um, the world doesn't stop existing. Uh, like capitalism doesn't stop happening. Yeah, like you ran into the Invasion Day protests on the way to the tennis. Um, we also, you know, were met with um, a lack of sunscreen because a corporate entity had taken over the sunscreen rights for the Australian Open. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, just stuff like that, or the high cost of food because it's been monopolised by um, certain companies who have the right to sell food within the Australian Open. Um, there's everywhere you look. And then, you know, McEnroe and Martin Navratilova speak out against homophobia. Um, you're, 
you're never going to um, escape. You know, it's never going to be. Even if the Australian Open wants to have a perfect tournament, um, they're not going to be. They're not going to be able to escape um, the realities of the world we live in. And they need the general public as well for their business model. And the general public right. are all all sorts of people, and mainly poor. You know, mainly not the ruling class. They're mainly the working class who who they want to sell tickets to. So. Um, these kind of issues are only going to, you know, where, wherever we are in the world, they're always going to be there. Yep. Yeah. As you know, as an anti-capitalist, do you find that it's difficult to be in a space that's so, you know, that's so defined by commerce that has commercial, like it's just basically completely supported by commercial interests and advertising and like every, everyone is trying to sell you something all the time. Does that, does that get to you while you're on the grounds? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm an anti-capitalist and a socialist, um, like a lot of people are, I think, in their political views, but we all have to live, um, we see advertising and corporate stuff, it's part of our life, and we have to sell our labour for a wage, and we can't opt out of it, um, we can't live in a pure utopia somewhere, you know, even if that was, even if such a thing existed, um, yeah, it feels like a, a flimsy statement to, you know, to try and avoid, you know, everything capitalistic completely, you know, who are you really affecting with that? You know, it's, um, I don't know. I, no, I, don't I, I find, yeah, I find the whole like, like, I actually, I mean, live tennis events don't even feel that bad because I think that they're sort of, um, it's like, you know, it's like corporations selling to other corporations or wealthy people kind of supporting the support. So I don't feel like it's as in my face, you know, like when I go to, um, when I attend South by Southwest in Austin and I, I just want to see like my favorite bands and, you know, explore new music and it just, everywhere you go, there's some fucking energy drink or, uh, alcohol label or like, you know, vape juice company that's trying to fucking sell you something. And it, it, you know, at a certain point, it just becomes so overwhelming. You're like, this is, this is like taking away from the spirit of the art. But I, I guess like for me, I've always had more trouble with, with the arts being kind of impinged upon by commerce, you know, sport and commerce. It just feels like that's kind of the natural way of things. I don't know that it has to be that way, but that women's final was a delight. I think we, you know, we got a lot of words to say about Sophia Cannon and Garbina Muguruza. Um, but it was just a really compelling match and uh, just a really interesting contrast of styles and, uh, you know, just really good competitive juice, um, cool backstories, you know, people really discovering Sophia Cannon for the first time. And, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, it was. Two different types of people, two different personalities, a lot of ebbs and flows in the match. Um, so, so it had yeah. that, that kind of um, narrative to it where um, it looked like Garvinia was going to win at, at taking the first set, but then Kennan came back, and but then Garvinia, you know, was up, a, well, she was up 40-love uh, to go up a break in the third set. And, and right, love 40, yeah. Uh, love at the, they were, it was two all, and so she had love 40 on Kennan's serve. That's right. Kennan played five absolutely incredible points, and... Uh, you know, he, she hit winners in all five of those points consecutively. Um, and Garbina was in those rallies and fighting like mad to win that game. 
because if she had broken, she would have, you know, there's a pretty good chance she would have won the match. I was saying last night that, you know, they're obviously, they play different styles, but what I like is the contrast in the personalities too. Like Kenan is so bullshy and expressive and, you know, and she's got this jump to, you know, this animated kind of way of being, but she's so composed in her play under pressure. And Garbina seems like very like controlling and fo- and like ultra focused, um, but is also like really emotional. And yeah, I, I just thought there was uh, there was an interesting contrast in the two, like the way they are outwardly and how it affects their games. Mm. Yeah, I, I I definitely think that Canon benefited from maybe not so much in the first set, but after the first set, becoming the aggressor and playing really positive attacking tennis and just being like this is my mm. moment i'm not going to lose it i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to really play positive tennis and then maybe garbinia um perhaps getting uh, overthinking too much maybe trying to be yeah. a little too cool i think ash Barty did the same thing in her match as well maybe tried to yeah not like play in her semi-final not play um as positive or involve the crowd as much as she could have and and be a little too a little too composed, if that's possible. A little too cool. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think sometimes when you're so controlled that that like the tightness of the grip can get to you. And unfortunately, Muguruza in the end uh, double faulted to lose the match, which just breaks my heart. Like I hate when players double fault to lose a set or a match, but to lose it the championship match on a double. And she's not somebody. They were saying on the commentary that she wasn't doubling very often. Maybe twice a match on average, but she doubled seven or eight times last night, including a few times in that final game. So the nerves clearly got to her in the end. And yeah, it was kind of unfortunate to see because I thought she played terrific tennis uh, through stretches of that match. And it was just a really uh, enjoyable match. And I found myself really appreciating Muguruza more than I ever have uh, warming to her, which it's always kind of nice feeling when you're like, I kind of see this player in a new light and maybe I'll root for them in future yeah yeah great she's got conchita martinez in her corner which is are you a conchita fan i i remember watching her when i was a kid she's got the nostalgia value for me because i remember in the 90s in the 90s watching tennis with my grandma and stuff she was one of the top women players um and yeah she's had a great comeback that she's was unseated but now she's back at the top of the game again so that's cool it's interesting because both Conchita Martinez and Alex Kennan are like very anxious animated coaches. Like they show them in their boxes and they're, but they're really fidgety and you can like, you really f- like read their emotions. And you, so you can totally see how Kennan, how Sophia Kennan like got that kind of element of her personality, but it's somehow transformed. Like she has this incredible self-belief and even though she's like, She's really animated and kind of all over the place. She's able to control her play. Um, and uh, But Muguruza, it's like you don't, it's hard to read her emotions sometimes because she's trying to keep it all in, I think. And um, Conchita is a really interesting coach for her because Conchita just shows it all. She's just like out there. <laughs> so, yeah, really cool. Um, I loved, uh, part of why I warmed to Garbina was because she gave this lovely speech and I think the thing that I'm that most 
uh, that was most notable to me about her speech was the way she acknowledged members of her team individually, you know, and really like just expressed this gratitude in a really genuine and warm way. Uh, I really liked that. Yeah, I agree. And I also like the way she acknowledged the crowd, like she acknowledged all of us, the people who have come yes. to watch the tennis over the last two weeks and said, you know, this is a show. We're putting on a show for you. This entertainment without you, the crowd, it's nothing. And I, um, I really appreciate that. Appreciate that way of looking um, at a sport like that because you know you can liken the athletes to performers, and um, why do it if no one's going to watch? If it's not, right. if it's not fun. Um, yeah. So it's not just about the athletic prowess and the hitting the ball exactly within the lines but it's also about you know the effect it has on, on on an audience watching yeah and i think it's also interesting because it's like it's almost noting that it's not all about them it's not all about her and her feelings i wonder if in a way it was almost like a deflection you know she's she's saying um not in an unhealthy way but just she's saying like you know look i might be unhappy but you know you guys got a great match and that's something to be grateful for you know um she didn't like have an emotional explosion or you know get really upset i mean i'm sure she was upset about it i think that was probably more clear in the press room but um yeah she was just really gracious in defeat and i think that's that sets a really good example you know kind of it sets a tone for sport that that i like to see you know where people can be really fiercely engaged in competition and then they can pull it back and, you know, and let, you know, like, I don't win. I'm still going to let you have your moment, you know, and, and appreciate all of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a healthy, it's healthy to have that perspective. Absolutely. Um, I just want to say, you know, my dream has officially came true. I cannot even describe this feeling. It's so emotional and I've worked so hard and I'm just so grateful to be standing here. You know, dreams come true. So you have a dream, go for it, and it'll, it's going to come true. Is it really the case that all you need to do for your dreams to come true is to go for it? Seems like a dubious proposition that Sophia Kennan was putting out there in her post-championship trophy celebration speech. Perhaps from her life experience, it is the case that her dream came true, but was it even really her dream to begin with? At age seven, it is hard to guarantee who is going to be a champion. However, Rick Macy coach Sonia Kennan appears to have what is needed to get to the top. Why do you want to be a tennis pro? Um, because I want to be a champion and I want to be number one in the world. Sophia's father, Alex Kennan, immigrated to the United States from Russia when Sophia was just a young child. At some point, Sophia's parents discovered a genuine love for tennis in their child. But to have the notion that becoming number one in the world or winning championships is a thing to do, that, that sort of concept seems to me to be something beyond the grasp of most young children. That's something that has to be cultivated by the parents. I'm not a father, so I don't know if 
supporting the dream of your child above all else makes sense necessarily. When I was five years old, my dream was to become a mustache fixer because my father had a mustache and I was worried that someday half of it would fall off. What if my father had taken this dream seriously? What if my father said, son, you can be anything. You want to be a mustache fixer? Let's make it happen. Let's do the work. I'm going to teach you about effort, about right effort and intent, how if you put your mind to something, it can become reality. How, as is said in the first verse of the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. If my father had taken my dream seriously, perhaps we would have looked into the possibility of starting a business together at a young age. He would have taught me about marketing, how to sell an idea to the public, how to create demand. Perhaps we would have set up a shop. We would have placed ads in the paper, gone to all of the mustache conventions looking for interested parties, people who would want the services of a mustache fixer. And perhaps if we had really followed through on this idea and put in the effort, put in hours of work every day, learning, exploring, growing this business idea, perhaps today I would be the foremost mustache fixer in the world. Perhaps I would have created a new industry. Dear Dave, um, I love your dream of being a mustache fixer. You probably already realize this, but that job kind of exists as a barber, but maybe your version um, creates a new job where there's comprehensive service and arrangement around everything to do with the moustache, how it interacts with your clothes and, um, yeah, moustache fixer. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities there. Fixing, uh, fi fixing, not just trimming. Or, um, yeah. I, uh, I agree with you. Just because you dream something and you go for it doesn't mean it's going to come true. That's, um, to put my socialist hat on, that's just what capitalism and the American dream wants us to believe, that if we work hard enough, we'll get, we'll get to where we want to go, rather than recognizing that the odds are stacked against us and that the system of capitalism only supports a small minority um, living out their dreams and the rest of us having to um, sell our labor for a wage in ways that we don't dictate but the market dictates having said that though i do think there's this there's a power in dreaming and trying and believing so yeah there's a bit of a contradiction there <laughs> <laughs>